0: If you have a Bible, you're going to need it. Uh, I'll invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we'll spend a lot of our time this morning, well, most of our time in Ephesians, flipping back and forth and around. And while you turn there, um, I'm not the lead pastor here if you're visiting. Uh, our lead pastor, Paul, is away this week, and so uh, I have the privilege of sharing God's word with us this morning. We're in a mini-series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 4, we looked at last week the fact that we're gathered together uh, to stand in awe of who God is. And when we realize who God is, we uh, pretty quickly have ourselves put into perspective. We find our place in respect to God's grandeur and His holiness. This week we're considering that we're gathered also to serve one another. And next week we'll continue in the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 4. So let's begin. The word of the Lord, beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, not only hearers of it only, but that we would be hearers and doers of it. Lord, that in doing so, we would grow. Father, help us, teach us, I pray. Amen. The book of Ephesians, uh, it's, it's really hard to only study one chapter of it, and so uh, I hope you realize that it's, it's almost unfair for us to only look at one chapter. You really need to study the whole book uh, to gain its whole depth. This isn't a difficult passage this morning for us to understand, and what I mean by that is you can read it and you can, you can understand quite plainly what, what, it, what it means for us. But I think we would be remiss to just pass over it because it's easy to understand because I think its implications and its applications for us are, are quite profound. Uh, the book of Ephesians can quite easily or you know, identifiably at a fundamental level anyway be divided into two halves. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with a belief, theology, what we call orthodoxy, so the right kind of thinking, the right kind of understanding of doctrine and of theology. Whereas chapters 4 and 6 Uh, We're right on the cusp of that in the beginning here of chapter 4. Chapters 4 and 6 deal primarily at a fundamental level with godly living, with orthopraxy, the the practice, the outworking of what is true for us theologically. And so we're kind of right in this sweet spot where we see what's true theologically has implications for us practically. The point is this, is that what's true about you, your identity, will change the way you live. So if you were born into a royal family, for example, like in England, that would, your life would look different because you're royalty. If you were born in a, a slum community in a third-world country, that also will change uh, the course of your life. Who you are, what you're identified as, affects the way forward. And of course, when we're looking at the book of Ephesians, we're, considered, we're considering the fact that you've been re-identified. The scriptures will tell us that uh, you, were, you were dead. God's renamed you. He's re-identified you. And you are to, live in a, uh, you're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's something true about you and I as believers and as followers of Jesus, and that should change the course for us forward, which is what we're going to consider this morning. I think Paul has three things for us to, uh, to, to unpack from this passage, and the first is this, is listen up. The second is he'll tell us to grow up, and the third is he'll tell us to step up. Listen up, grow up, shut up, I mean, step up. <laughs> Listen up, let's begin. Chapter 4, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we need, to, we need to pause there for a moment because right there, there's a lot for us that we need to unpack before we can continue. That second word, grace, is something that's repeated 12 times throughout the book of Ephesians. And I think unless we, unless we camp out there and really unpack what he means by the fact that grace was given to us, that we'll miss some significant things moving forward. There's a story, it's not a true story, of a young boy who asks his dad sort of the meaning of, of the world and how, how the world is. And he asks his dad, what's holding the world up? And his dad tells him that the, the earth is sitting on the back of a big turtle. And the boy says, okay, well, what's the turtle Standing on? And the dad is kind of searching for an answer and says, Well, on the back of a bigger turtle. And then the boy, of course, doing what boys do, asks again, Well, what's that turtle standing on? And the dad finally says, Listen, it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) That's not, by the way, that's not true uh, astronomy. The earth is not sitting on the back of a turtle. But for us, when we think about Christianity, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, I think it's true to say that it's grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace, and it's grace all the way down in the gospel. It's grace all the way down. The Apostle Paul in the first, first chapter of this book in verse eight, he says that God's grace through Jesus has been lavished upon us. Think of a waterfall or a big, just a big mess of water flowing down out of a fire hydrant maybe. That's, that's lavishing. God's grace is lavished to you and it's grace all the way down. And grace is twofold. The first is that there's salvation by grace, which we'll consider, And the second is that there's these gifts that we read about are also a gift of grace. The first of these is that there's salvation by grace. Here's what I mean. I need to go back a chapter or two and consider in Ephesians chapter 2 exactly what Paul's referring to when he talks about this idea that um, you've, you've been saved, that there's salvation. Here's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our own desires of the body and of the mind. So your old way of living was to just do what you defaultly programmed to doing, is to live in your sin. And in that state, you are a hater of God. You may not, may not outrightly say, I hate God, but that status, your spiritual status is a hater of God, is a son and a daughter of disobedience. But it goes on. To say this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. You see, God showed His kindness upon His children in calling them out of a life of sin and out of a life of wickedness and into a life of adoption. There's a comparison. The language, or other parts, in, uh, other parts of this book, is that you started off as an alien. You're alienated. You're a hater of God. And you've gone from being an alien to being adopted. And this will set the way forward for you. Imagine someone who's struggled with with, uh, substance abuse in their past. And maybe they reached a point in their addiction where they were at rock bottom and they said, I need to make a change. And so they get the help they need and they're freed from their addiction. Now, that person in their new way of living would not be wise to begin to hang out with those people they used to hang out with. Or to revisit those same places. Or to start to build those same habits. You see, they've been taken out of an old life and now they've been set in a new life. And Paul will tell us that we need to act as such. You've gone from death to life. Verse 7 of Ephesians 2, "...so that in the coming ages he, who's God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." You see, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not because you're really smart or you figured it out or there was a a lock on a safe and a code and you, you decoded it. There's no credit to you or to me as though it depends on us. But it's solely God's grace, the fact that you can be saved from your wickedness and be called a son and a daughter. And here's what's I think maybe most interesting about God's grace is that not only is it lavished upon us but that God does some of his most miraculous work in some of the least likely situations with some of the least likely people. Not the least of which, by the way, would would be Jesus coming to earth, God of the universe coming to earth in the form of a baby. Not very likely. (laughs) Not a very mighty, valiant warrior babies are. But God does some of his most miraculous work in in the least likely circumstances. And this is what Paul knows very, very deeply and intimately for himself. You see, Paul knew something of God's unlikely grace. If you know your Bible, you'll know that Paul didn't start off as Paul. He began off as Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the early church. He was a Pharisee, which means he, he kept the law. He was kind of like a religious police officer. So he was out enforcing the law, making sure that you were obeying all the practices and rites and, and uh, ri- rituals of Judaism. And so when this Jesus guy comes along, this is... This is blasphemous. This can't be. And so Paul, among others, and the team of Pharisees and Sadducees, they're sort of gatekeepers of the Jewish faith saying, no way, we're not going to put up with this. And they begin to persecute these followers of Jesus. And so Paul, among them, was a prominent one. He, there, there's, a, there's a scene for us in Acts chapter 7 where a guy called Stephen Who's, it tells us he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's he's an apostle. He's preaching. He's doing mighty things. He's dragged out and he's dragged before the high priest and he's accused of blasphemy and false teaching. And the high priest says, "Is this true?" And he he goes on. He, he begins to preach and th- this is nonsense. And so they decide that they're going to stone him to death. And so they drag him out of the city and they begin to hurl stones at Stephen. And as he's dying, he sees he's, he sees his spirit being sent up into heaven. And he's killed. And it tells us in Acts 22 that Saul was standing by affirming his stony. He gave it the thumbs up. He was right there. So this is why Paul, in Ephesians 3, the same book, just one chapter earlier, says, Of this gospel, the salvation we just looked at, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, me, even me. Like if if there was a deserving disciple ever, it would not be me. I'm quite the opposite. But God's grace is so amazing that he rescued Saul from his wickedness. He struck him down on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he turns his life around and Saul becomes one, or Paul, pardon me, becomes one of the prominent New Testament early church leaders who wrote a good portion of the New Testament text for us. So why would God do this? Why would God choose to use Paul? Why would God choose to use me? Well, it's because of his grace. Not only did he save Saul, but he made him a minister, a pastor, a church planter because of his grace. So Paul here wants us to understand the fact that there is salvation only by grace, not because of anyone's righteousness or anyone's intelligence or merit. But the second is that there's these gifts that are given also by God's grace. Let's pick up in verse eight in our text this morning. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Listen, you might find that confusing. Wait, descended, descended, lower, what? What's he talking about? This is a reference to Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, what we see is that God has triumphed over evil, over wickedness for, forever. Up on the top of a mountain. And so God in Psalm 68 goes up, defeats evil, and comes down with his defeated foes in, his, in the train of his robe. And he begins to receive gifts from the people who he's defeated. And so Paul takes that image of God conquering death. As we see in Colossians 2, Christ did that for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. So Paul takes that image and he amplifies the New Testament meaning of Psalm 68. And he says that God, through Christ, did go up. He he descended into the earth. And in doing so, he conquered uh, sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And then through his ascension... He didn't then receive gifts from us, but he distributed the gifts to us at that point. And so this is kind of an amplification of of an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 68. So in our text here this morning, Christ, when he ascends, begins to distribute the gifts to his sons and daughters. He gives gifts according to his wisdom. And it says that he gives gifts to everyone. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have received gifts. Let's pick up in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Each has received a different gift. This isn't a full, exhaustive, complete list. If you're looking at that going, uh, apostle, nope, a prophet, nope, evangelist, <laughs> nope. Okay, there's still hope for you. <laughs> I'm not an apostle either. Okay, this isn't a full, complete list of the spiritual gifts. But what we need to understand is that God. Empowers his church, his people, for the work of the ministry. And he equipped church leaders, okay, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, to build the church, to equip the saints, that's God's people, that's the sheep, that's the flock, for the work of the ministry, which also is to build the church. It's kind of a closed system, a closed loop here where God's empowering the church so that the church would grow, so that the church could spread. More on spiritual gifts we see in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12, if you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 4. We don't unfortunately today have time to go into those, but I think it's sufficient to recognize in 1 Corinthians 12 the following, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God has given you, brother and sister, gifts for the common good of the church. And I don't only mean this church. We are a church, absolutely. Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church is a church and we are a part of the church. Don't mistake the two, okay? God's church isn't a million and one different churches all around the world. God's family is God's church and we're one small member of that. And smaller still, you and I are members of that local church within the larger church. But the gifts are given for the common Good. Why? Well, because this was God's plan for salvation, because of his grace. So Paul says, listen up. You're a child of grace. He gives us our marching orders, and those for us the rest of our time this morning are to grow up and to step up. So let's continue. Grow up. Let's look at verse 11. Again, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and fullness of, fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by the wind of every doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, but rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Listen, you and me need to grow up. There's lots of biblical images of, of this growing up. You might be familiar with the image of a tree Okay, its roots are growing down in God's, God's gospel, and it's producing fruit. We have the fruit of the Spirit. So there's different images. N- none of them are better than the other. They're, they're all saying the same thing, that we need to grow up. Other parts of the New Testament, there's an image of running a race or a marathon or boxing. Other images are that we're, we're engaged in a war, that we're war wagers. But here, of course, our image is the image of a person, of, of a body, of a who starts as a child who's vulnerable and weak and gullible. Kids are gullible, you know that? But the goal is that not that that child would stay a a helpless child, but that that child would grow up into mature manhood so that they wouldn't be put off course through the circumstances, the trials of life that come. That they wouldn't be led astray or enticed by wrong thinking or worse yet, leave the faith because they've given up or they've been deceived. Now, if you're new to the faith, uh, welcome to the faith. There's nothing wrong with being a a baby Christian, you might hear that term, or or young in your faith. If you're 8 or 80, you can be new to the faith, and welcome to the faith. It's by God's grace you've been saved. Welcome to the race. There's everything wrong, however, though, with staying an infant, staying a baby Christian, or staying young in your faith. I have four young kids, and... uh, I'm waiting for the day for them to grow up. (laughs) I'm not waiting too eagerly because I'm enjoying this stage of life. But, man, I'm not raising my kids so that they can hang around and they can just be at home forever. No, I want them to grow up into maturity. And if you've raised kids before, I'm sure the same is true for you, that you, you don't raise kids so that they can stay immature, but you raise them up so that they can grow and be confident and that they can thrive and succeed in this life. So there's nothing wrong with being a young believer but the scriptures will not allow you to stay that way. You see, following Christ will necessarily produce spiritual growth. I'll say that again. Following Christ will necessarily produce spiritual growth. If, if you decided that you're going to do 10 sit-ups a day for a year, starting now. Go on. I'm kidding. If you decide you're going to do 10 sit-ups a day for a year starting now, I promise you that you will not get weaker in a year. You may get, you'll get stronger in fact, okay? You may not see results tomorrow or in a week or even at the end of the year, the results may not be visible from only doing 10 sit-ups, but you will not get weaker by exercising. You will not get weaker or less strong by running or by doing sit-ups or by going to the gym. So it is with our Christian walk. If you're a follower of Jesus, and by that I don't just mean you go to church, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you will necessarily grow spiritually because that's the nature of the Christian walk. That's what the scriptures will do. The scriptures will urge you to grow. They'll transform you. They'll change your thinking. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit, God himself, by his Holy Spirit, will come and dwell within you. And so it's not up to you to be awesome and to be the greatest follower of Jesus ever, because God's dwelling within you. Your job is to know the word of God, is to love God and to obey his commandments. So it's not just time only that brings about spiritual maturity. Otherwise, we could just sit around and wait till we're a thousand and all be wonderful saints. So you can be 80 and come to saving faith and be an infant Christian and have a 12-year-old teach you the doctrines. That's awesome. Okay? So it's not time only, but it's about loving Jesus. And in doing so, you will grow up in every way. Every way. The scriptures promise it that you will grow up strong. In your faith. Whether you want to use the image of fruit, trees, fighting a fight, running a race, you will grow, you will succeed, you will thrive if you persevere. I have a neighbor who's a tugboat operator and he leaves town uh, for work about a week at a time, sometimes three weeks at a time. And the amount of time he's gone for will depend on uh, largely what what season it is, what the weather's doing, what the waves, what the storms are doing, what the tides are doing. Because at best, a tugboat with a full load, I've learned, can do about a jogging pace. which is, would be really depressing as a tugboat operator because you're not going very fast. Okay, but you're going, and you're on course, and so if you need to get from here up to Alaska, it maybe would take you two weeks at best. But you imagine the, the, the tides working against you, the current, the storms, the waves crashing up against the ship. If that ship can stay on course at best in the worst of weathers, my neighbor tells me a, a tugboat can stand still at best to just weather out the storm. And so think of this image, the fact that um, we we ought to persevere, (laughs) okay? Being a Christian doesn't mean all your worries are gone, that life will suddenly become easy and you'll just have this force field around you and you'll be invincible to life's trials. No, quite the opposite. The call is to run the race, is to persevere through the waves, through the trials, and through the temptation, like a tugboat. Sometimes you won't move very fast, but if you stay on course, you'll be able to make it through by God's grace. So what does this spiritual growth look like? Like, you can sit through church, you can read your Bible till you're blue in the face and not, not be changed. It is possible. So then, how do we grow? What does that look like? Well, I have a few ideas. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, I want you to consider what are the things that trip you up? What are the things that, that cause you to stumble? And are those the same things that caused you to stumble 10 years ago? What about your prayer life? Not just the amount you pray, but the things you pray about. Are you praying today for the same things you were 10 years ago, or five years ago, or 10 days ago? And maybe you are. Maybe there's something in your life that you have not seen changes. And if that's the case, how have you seen God work over those years? What about your convictions? As you grow in the knowledge and the grace and the understanding, what is God laying on your heart? What are the burdens he's putting on your heart? Maybe it's for the lost. Maybe it's for people overseas. Maybe it's for clean water. Maybe it's for creation care. How about your generosity? Is that increasing? Did you give more this year than you did last year? Or did you give less? And I don't just mean money. I don't just mean money to the church, though that's also necessary. But what have you done with what God's given you? How about your confidence in God's faithfulness? Is that something that's increasing through the trials of life, or is that decreasing? As you depend on God, have you seen him work more and more in your life, or are you leaning more and more on yourself? What about the things that, that really turn your crank, the affections of your heart? Are those things that are increasingly eternal, or are those things that are increasingly temporary, the things that you can see? The scriptures tell us one will last much longer than the other. One is a much greater reward than the other. Or what about this? Are you participating in a thriving gospel community? <clears throat> I hope you are. I hope this church for you is a thriving gospel community, but it doesn't only look like attending church. Do you have friends, good spiritual friends, mentors, who can encourage you, who can challenge you? These are the kind of things that are reflected in a growing spiritual life journaling is a is a habit a lot of people have built it's a discipline I find it very difficult but I know people who have journaled for years and they have a bookshelf or two full of journals from 30 years ago and there's a paper trail of how they've seen God work they can track the things they've prayed for they can track what God's done they can open up a book and give you a date or some people make notes in their Bible on this day at this time I read this verse and there's a little note in the margin there's no prescription for me I can't tell you how to do that But when you look back, are you growing? Are you growing in your faith journey? So to grow up, there's growth as a believer, which we just considered. The second is that as a church, also, the instruction for us is to grow up. Growth for the church. Paul here tells us that Christ is the head of the church, and it's through whom, through Christ, it's by whom, and it's for whom that we gather. It's for his sake that we exist. And it's for his glory. He doesn't need us. He chooses to use us so that we would bring him glory and we enjoy him for eternity but what is it that unites us like other than the fact that we all unless you're visiting you, you live in the area okay obviously you prefer ten thirty to 9 okay if those are the things that unite us then i think we've we've missed the point if you only hang out with people who are like you or who like the same things you do you've missed the point if those are the things that unite us i think we're in some trouble Christ is what unites the church. <laughs> it has to be that way. He tells us that he has. But you know what divides the church? It is us. It's people who divide the church. And there's a bit of a paradox here because God has, in his holy plan, called the church to be the ones to build the church. So we are the ones who are commissioned to do this and build up the church. But you and I also in our folly... and stubbornness are the ones who can also bring the church down. We have the ability to build the church up or to tear it down. And that can happen a few different ways. I hope that that's not the case for us. But the body has the ability to tear itself down, either deliberately. Sometimes people can come in and just create dissension and create all kinds of confusion and divide people. That's not good. But sometimes, too, relationships, maybe a marriage can be destroyed through prolonged neglect. Just through, ah, we'll go through the motions, it's fine. So the body has the greatest capacity to build itself up, yet also the greatest capacity to tear itself down. So how do we not tear ourselves apart? How do we not tear ourselves down? How do we grow up? Well, I think Paul offers here for us three, three options, three suggestions, three ideas And those are to speak the truth in love, to preserve unity, and to use your gifts. These are three ways that you can be a part of the growth of the church. Both our church, but also the church, the larger church, the body of Christ. Let's look at those in order. Speak the truth in love. Do you know what a truth bomb is? (laughs) If you're under 40, you probably do. A truth bomb is exactly what it sounds like. It's something that's true that can just destroy something. And oftentimes we do this as a natural tendency in, in, in a fight or a dispute, even with people we love. Oh, yeah, well, you're whatever, <laughs> right? And then the person fires back a truth bomb, okay? You can say something that's really true and just can rock, rock the world. So the truth can hurt, but it's not the truth's fault that the truth hurts. <laughs> it's the messengers who have the ability for the truth to either be received in destructiveness or to be received in grace. Check out Proverbs 15:1 says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You can be harsh with the truth or you can be soft and you can be gentle and turn away that wrath. Or Proverbs 12:18 says there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, like a sword being thrust through your flesh. Rash harsh words, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the truth can destroy but the truth can also bring healing. Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And Paul tells us to speak the truth in love. (laughs) We want to study what's true, we want to know what is true, we want to grow in what is true and be built up on truth, which ultimately is Christ, in love. So friction is sure. Friction is almost a guarantee in this life. In the church, outside the church, in the home, outside the home, at the workplace, with strangers. But it's easy to be kind and to be hospitable and courteous to people you don't know, isn't it? Like in the grocery store, everyone's so nice, okay? But you enter a home or a marriage that's struggling, that's where the truth can hurt. That's where damage can be done. But speak the truth in love is what we're called to do. The second is to preserve unity. I want to go back to the the beginning of chapter four, which is the passage we looked at last week, verses one to three. Paul urges us something. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Christ has promised us, he's achieved for us unity, not perfection. He doesn't just make perfect saints everywhere. But he's brought us unity. And in our our interactions as brothers and sisters, we ought to preserve that unity. We don't create the unity. Christ has done that. Which is a good thing. But you and I, in our interactions and in our problem solving and in our growing together, we ought to preserve the unity. So, let me ask you this. What... A minute ago, I asked you what unites you. So if I ask you that question, you know the answer, it's Christ, okay? But if anything less than Christ unites us, for example, I like the color red, you like the color red. If we're here together because we both like the color red, what's gonna happen when I decide that I fancy the color blue? Well, then there's gonna become division. And if what divides us is stronger than what unites us, which biblically speaking is impossible, but if on the surface, what, what divides us is stronger than what unites us, then that's going to win. That's going to destroy. But because Christ has achieved for us unity, we ought to maintain that unity. doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything all the time and it's all going to be hunky-dory. But it means that our goal is to keep the peace with humility, gentleness, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's keep the peace. The reason why Christ can unite us is because he's unchanging. Preferences, styles, circumstances, all of those things can change. The only thing that does not change is Christ, by his grace. So let's let him be what unites us. The third, using your gifts. I mentioned that there's other texts that that speak to us on this subject about gifts. Let's look at Romans 12 real quick. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there. Romans 12, verse 4 to 6. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of it. That's an easy image for us to get, right? You have a body. You have got fingers and knuckles and wrists and all that great stuff and together you make a body and each one of us plays a small part. It's all joined together by God's body and Christ is at the head. So we've all been given gifts. He will tell us everyone do you know what your gifts are? And it's not just the popular ones, okay? It's not just about prophesying or speaking in tongues. Those tend to get a lot of the limelight because people like to discuss them. And they're flashy. But what are the things that God's given you? What are the abilities, the, the desires, maybe the skills? What are the things that God has given you? How's he wired you? How has he made you? And further to that, how are you using those gifts? Are you using them to serve others? Or maybe you didn't even think about that. How about this? I think it would be remiss to only look at the things that God's given us. That You know, I mean, for example, I'm not a great cook. So does that mean I'm off the hook for showing hospitality? No. <laughs> you just marry someone who's a good cook, okay? That's, that's the way out of that one. Nobody gets a pass. We've all been given gifts for the furtherment of the kingdom. They're not about prestige or authority or fame. They're purely to build up the body not oneself not your image not popularity but it's to build up the church but it would be remiss to think it's only the things that god's made you to be but let's consider the things that god's given you what are you doing with the things the the assets the resources those kinds of things that god has given you you may come from much you may come from little the question is not only how much are you giving But how much are you keeping? Are you stingy with what God's given you? Or are you generous with what God's given you? Our goal is not to please each other. That sounds odd in a church where everyone's happy, right? And we're keeping the peace. But our goal, my goal, is not to make you happy or to please you. Your goal is not to please your neighbor. Your goal is to please the Lord. My goal is to please the lord and in so doing we serve each other and in so doing that i my hope our goal would be that we do it well that we don't make enemies <laughs> but we our goal is not to make people like us our job is to please the lord but we don't always get it right we mess up and so when that happens we ought to have grace for one another we ought to keep short accounts be humble be gentle be patient bear one another in love, and of course, preserve unity, keep the peace. So, growth, grow up. Finally, and it's shorter, step up. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Isn't it a great thing when the body does what it's supposed to? When you wake up in the morning and your back doesn't hurt? (laughs) That's going to be a good day, right? Your body is meant to work well together. Christ has intended for the body to work well together. My wife and I have been watching the Olympics. And one of the things we like to do is we like to watch, you know, like the final rounds. Okay, and we get to see who wins gold and silver and all that. And then they always interview the people at the end who, who did the best at the thing. And so this past week, I don't know if you knew, but the, the women uh, won gold for rowing, which is exciting. It's not a sport I'm familiar with. But the women in the interview, after they won gold, said something really profound. I mean, normally they just talk about, you know, how hard they worked and how proud they are of their team. And that's all great. But this woman said something very profound to me. She said, we're sort of like a body... All working together. Now, I don't know where she got that from. (laughs) But the church is sort of like a body, you know, all working together. The rowboat is sort of like a body. You see, there's one person, I think they're called the coxswain, who looks forward, right? Everyone else is looking backwards depending on your perspective, right? But seven people are looking one way and one person's looking the other way. You got the people who bring the power. You got the people who steer. And when you win, or pardon me, when you all work together, you win the race. When it does what it's supposed to do, it is a beautiful thing. And so it is with the church. When we all work together, we build ourselves up in love. So, Paul's call to step up. I think we would be wrong to leave here thinking that the answer is to just sign up for nursery or sign up for making scones. Okay, we, that's a good thing. You should maybe still think about doing that. But the answer isn't to just go and now do and sign up for things and serve out of duty. That would be to miss the point. The answer is to behold Christ and to behold his grace. And in so doing, your affections for the church, for the body of Christ, will be stirred up so that you will want to serve. You will be eager. Last week, um, I served at a camp. I have lots of skills. They asked me to pick up trash for the week. I picked up trash. (laughs) It wasn't my favorite thing to do. But out of reverence for Christ and his grace, we ought to be humble. We ought to serve the church and build it up in love, not that we would receive a medal, a gold medal or a silver medal or a crown or a bouquet of flowers, but that we would receive a crown of glory on the Judgment day. I'll close with this. It's the verse we all read corporately a few moments ago from First Peter chapter four. "Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that even though you don't need us, you cherish us, you hold us together, you have made us, you have united us, as your people Lord I pray for those that know you and who are found in you Lord that we would embrace your church that we would read the word that we would be changed by the word and we would do the word and in so doing Lord that we would build up the body that we would succeed in that mission of what you've called us to do whatever our function is whatever our role is Lord that we wouldn't be so proud or so self-centered or narcissistic that we wouldn't be willing to do things like pick up trash So Lord, I pray that we would heed these words. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, it's in your name we ask all these things. Amen.